morning. Good evening to everybody at the back. Lovely to see you. Oh, I can see waving away in the distance, and isn't this a great sunset? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, If you've got a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it, can you turn to Paul's letter to the Romans? What we're going to do tonight, I, I really want you to know how the gospel works, and I want you to know how much God loves you. That's my goal for tonight. And I wanted to do that by going through Paul's letter to the Romans but not reading it all. I'm going, to read, I'm going to basically perform the first half of Romans, if that doesn't sound too weird. I'm going to do Romans 1 to 8. You can follow along. You don't have to. Hopefully, you'll follow it anyway. But what I want to do is actually, as if I was Paul talking to you to take you through the first eight chapters of Romans. This is not a translation. It's not really even quite a paraphrase. It's just me trying to do Romans for you. And I hope you'll follow it. And if you don't, Well, it's all right, because we'll be able to praise God again in a few minutes' time. But I want you to see how much God loves you and how the gospel works. So I'm going to be at the beginning of Romans, and you can walk with me as you go, if you like. But my name is Paul, and I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And he set me apart so that I might be an apostle, somebody who's sent into the world to proclaim the gospel, the good news of God. And the good news of God is that he has a son and that that son is descended in human terms from David, like he's a king, but in divine terms. He's been raised from the dead by the Spirit, and he's been shown, therefore, to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'm writing to you. You're in Rome. You know that. Togas, Caesars, you know, lots of fights, chariot races, that sort of thing. And I'm writing to you because you have been called by God and set apart to be saints. And I want you to know the encouragement of the gospel. And first things first, I want to th- thank God for you because your faith, guys, New Day, your faith is known of all over the world. There are people in every continent that talk about your faith, that celebrate the goodness of God that people like you have come to believe. God's my witness. I, I serve him uh, with the, in my spirit in the gospel of his son, and I'm always praying for you because I want you to know, and I'd actually love to be able to come and visit you so that I could give you a gift and you could give me a gift and it would make you strong. I'm actually under obligation to everybody. My job that God has set me apart for is to tell people everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's true of people who are close to me and people on the other side of the world. It's true of people right in my backyard, and it's true of people in jungles and nations that have never heard of Jesus. I've got a debt to them, and I want to go everywhere, Jew, Greek, barbarian, everybody, and tell them how good God is and what he's done for them in Jesus Christ and how much he loves them. And that's why I want to come and preach the gospel to you, because I'm not ashamed of it, because it's the power of God to save everybody who has faith, right? And some people have faith are Jews, and they've known who God is for thousands of years, And some people who have faith are Gentiles and they've got no idea what the word God even means. But I'm not ashamed of the good news of God because he's come to save and give his righteousness to everyone who who believes. For the Jew first and then also Gentiles. And I want you to know what that gospel is because the righteousness of God has been shown in it for everyone who believes, beginning and ending with faith. But you know, I want to first of all tell you why you need a gospel. God's angry. You know that? God is angry with the world. That's not the main thing you need to know about God at all. Actually, you will find out the love of God is fast. But you need to know that God is angry with the way in which human beings, and they're all around you in your towns and cities and schools and universities, they are all around you, human beings 
suppress the truth that they already know is about God. Look around you. Look at the clouds up there. Look at the trees. Look at the fields. Everyone knows that there is a creator of some sort. And actually, everyone knows that that creator is super powerful and distant and unlike them. No one would look at the clouds or the trees and think, do you know what? This God here is just like me. Yet somehow human beings suppress that truth. They push it down. They say, I don't want to believe that because then he might be able to tell me what to do. And so what they do is they exchange the glory of the God who made that with the kinds of images that human beings make, the kind of models they make, the kind of images. We call them idols. Other things that human beings might bow down to. Blocks of wood, iPhones, money, sex, power. But they idolize things. They turn them into little gods and they exchange the glory of the one who created the sky for the sorts of things they can control and hold in their hand. They do that because they want to control God. And what God has done to judge people, and they're all around you, what God has done to judge people is he's actually said, okay, you have it your way. If you want to live like that, you, you live like that. You will experience what it's like to be a servant of a false God. I'm going to let you carry out the exchange your heart desires. I'm going to let you turn that glory into something miniature and silly and held in your hand. And you're going to serve it. And you're going to discover what it's like to serve a false God. And that exchange is going to ca- cash out everywhere. It's going to, there's going to be an exchange that takes place in your sexual relationships. So instead of, you see, just as you went, well, I'm supposed to be worshipping a God who is unlike me and of whom there is only one, what I want to do is worship lots of gods who are just like me. And in the same way, your sexuality is created for one person who is not like you, and you're going to exchange it for sexual relationships with all sorts of people. And they might even be just like you. So men, sex with men, women, sex with men, and all of that. All of that is fallout from the exchange that has taken place when people said, I'm not going to treasure God as my highest prize. I'm going to exchange it for the kinds of things that I can make and control. And what happens when we do that is that we get handed over to the things our hearts crave, and it's not good. And you can see the consequences of it all around you. You can see people being handed over to a debased mind to do things that they're not supposed to do. And you'll find people, the way that they speak to their parents, the way they think about envy and murder and strife and malice and all that kind of stuff spills out of a heart that has swapped God's glory for fallen things. And so God is cross about that. Now, that's not the only thing you need to know about him, but that's why you need a gospel. There's a whole bunch of you sitting there thinking, yeah, that is right. That's exactly what people are like. These wicked, evil people in the world around me. Ha! Fortunately, I'm not like that. Very godly person, me. I always put God first, sent to my life, raised my hands in worship. You are, you are worth it all. Let everything. That's me. I'm like that. But you know what? A lot of the people who do that, you're really in your, in fact, all of the people who do that, in your heart, you're kind of just the same as everyone else. Because you do the same sorts of things. Right? You proclaim the truth, you know it, you say, oh yeah, I believe this and I do that and so on. And you say, I'm very righteous actually. And God says, no, in your heart you're doing the same thing. You've exchanged the glory of God as well. You've gone off and said, okay, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to use my um, morally compromised but clever religious ways of getting what I want and still making it look deeply spiritual. And I'm going to do that because I think God's not going to worry about me because I'm a religious person. Let me tell you, that's not how it works at all. God judges everybody. He doesn't ju- just judge the heathens, the pagans out in the party going, Whoa! he judges the people going, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those people over there. He judges the people going, Whoa! and the people going, Whoa! he judges all in accordance with what they've done. 
He's going to do that for you one day, friends. He will bring a judgment over your life. No one here is going to escape the judgment of God. You may find, as you'll see in a moment, you may find that you've already been declared righteous at that judgment, but no one's going to escape the judgment. That judgment will be passed over every single person listening to what I'm saying right now. And you need to know that, because if you've got the law, as Jewish people do, you're going to be judged according to the law. And if you don't have the law, like Gentile people don't, then you're going to be judged out without the law. But ultimately, you're all going to be judged by your own standard. And guess what? You haven't even lived up to your own standard, let alone to the standard of a holy God. And so if you call yourself a Jew, as many do, and say, oh, it's all right, I, I, I know the law, we've got the history, we've got all of that. And you say, oh, I boast in God. Let me ask you, do you live by what the law actually says? Do you really? And when no one's looking, I mean, I don't mean at New Day, I mean normally. Do you live by the, what the law says? Or are you in exactly the same boat as the, pe- the pagans out? Are you like just like them in your heart? Do you need rescue just like everybody else? I suspect you do. I think some of you are trusting in circumcision as if somehow having your foreskin cut off and thrown away is enough to save you. But it's not. What you need, you actually need your heart to be, have the flesh not just cut off your foreskin. You need the flesh to be cut out of your heart and thrown away. You need to be given a new heart. You need God to come and give you a heart of flesh to take away your heart of stone, to renew you entirely. And if that's what's happened to you, you'll find your praise doesn't come from human beings. It comes from God. But if that hasn't happened, you're not actually really a Jew. True Jews are people whose hearts have had the flesh chopped off and thrown away. Heart circumcision, if you will. And that kind of person finds their praise comes not from other people, it comes from God. So is there any benefit in being a Jew? Well, actually there is, yes, because the Jews have got lots of history. We've got the promises of God, we've got the oracles, we've got Abraham, we've got the, all the caboodle. It's great being a Jew. And you might say, well, of course, it doesn't really matter that you've got all that history because a lot of people have been unfaithful. And I say, yeah, okay, but that means they've been unfaithful. It doesn't mean God's not been faithful. God's always faithful. Let God be true and every man a liar. doesn't matter. Ultimately, God's faithfulness always stands no matter what we do. And so, of course, some people are going to look at it, something like that and say, well, in that case, my unrighteousness might show how good God is. You say, yeah, that's just a stupid thing to say. That's like the kind of thing people accuse me of saying sometimes. It's absolute nonsense. But I, I know people say it. It doesn't really follow. Ultimately, Jews are not really any better off than anybody else because we have already shown that Jews and Gentiles alike are imprisoned and enslaved under sin. It doesn't matter. You're Jewish people. You go, yeah. Slave to sin. This is, what I'm, this is all the point I'm trying to make at the moment. Jews, and Je- Jews enslaved to sin. Gentiles enslaved to sin. We're totally locked in. And we're not free because we can't break out. And in fact, if you read the scriptures, we're in chapter 3 if you're following along at the moment, 3 verse 9. The scriptures say no one's righteous. Not even one. The venom of snakes is the way they talk. Right? Their throat is an open grave. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. If you hear their language, their speech, you hear everything they say, they're trapped. They're enslaved by the false gods that they've served, and every last one of them is going to be held accountable for it, not just the things they say, the things they do, the things they think they are enslaved to the sin that they have chosen to follow. And we know that all that the law says, it says so that every single human being might hear what God demands and say, I haven't done that. I haven't lived up to that. I'm as trapped as the next person. So you've got a problem, haven't you? Right? That's, that's the first bit. You've got a problem. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, which is not in the law, but the law and the prophets actually point forward to it, 
And the righteousness of God doesn't come through the works that you and I do, whether you're religious or pagan. That's not how God makes people righteous. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for everybody who believes. There's actually no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all who believe are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the freedom from slavery that comes in Christ Jesus. And the way that happened is that God put forward Jesus Christ as a big word, a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement. Work with me. On the day of atonement in Leviticus, there were two animals, two goats that got taken and the the sins of the people were laid on these two goats. I'm sorry this one looks more like a zebra, the other one looks more like a leopard but I, or tiger, I guess, but I, I trust that you'll take the point. And the sins of the people were laid on the goat and the people would gather around and they would experience what happened to their sin when God made sacrifices for them. And one of those two goats would just be killed. And what would happen is it's as if the high priest on behalf of God was saying to Israel, your sins have been killed. They're gone. All of the stuff I've just been ranting at you about, saying, you're under sin, dead, dead. And the goat would spill out its life and they said, oh my goodness, it's died. My sins have died. Jesus is that goat and Jesus has died for you. But that's not all he's done. Because the other goat wouldn't be killed. The other goat would be taken out into the wilderness. And then somebody would take the goat out and it would be called the goat for Azazel. And it would be, you read about it in Leviticus 16 and it would be taken out into the wilderness so that the people of Israel could see their sin resting on the head of this goat, and they could see it disappear away as far as the east is from the west. They could see it rising in the sky. They could see it drifting and disappearing from them. They could Listen, all of the shame that TJ talked about last night, resting on that and disappearing from you as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus did that. And so the sins of the people were laid on Jesus. And as he walked out of Jerusalem and died for the sins of the world, he carried every wrong thing you've ever done and every wrong thing that's ever been done to you on his shoulders. And he left it and took it away from you that you might never see it again. And that God did to show his righteousness so that people might know, do you know this God? He is both totally righteous and he's the one who totally makes righteous everybody who believes in Jesus, no matter what they've done. So what are you going to boast in? Are you going to boast? Oh, no, it's only for our people. Look, there, it's still going. Still going. What are you going to boast in? Are you going to say, oh, yeah, I can boast in my works. I'll boast in my achievements. Is God the God of only the Jews? No, he's the God of the Jews and the Gentiles because God is one and he's going to justify the Jews and the Gentiles not by circumcision, not by works of the law, not by anything they've achieved, but simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So what are we going to say Abraham found out about all this? He's our forefather in a human way, right? Distant ancestor, Father Abraham, her many sons, who? We know that guy. Now, what did Abraham discover about all of this? Because I suppose if Abraham was justified, if he was declared righteous before God because of his works, he can boast about them. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says Abraham believed God, and that belief was given to him as righteousness. Now, you don't use words like given if you're trying to talk about something that someone's earned. That's just not what happens. At the end of the week, you get a wage. Or if you're very fancy, a salary. 
right? You get, a, you get, a, you get given it because it's like in exchange for services. You say, I've done this. Now, pay up. That's how the world works. But you don't use language like gift to describe that. At Christmas, you don't say, hey, you've done really, really well, and now I'm going to give you a gift. You say, no, it doesn't matter whether you've done well or not. I'm going to give you a gift because I love you. And Scripture talks like this. It says, Abraham was given a gift of righteousness. Actually, the Psalms say the same. They say it about David. They say, oh, he's blessed if his lawless deeds are covered. He's blessed. That's the language you use when you don't deserve something. You know, you don't deserve the righteousness of God at all. But he's given it to you as a gift. You don't work and get it. He gives it to you because he loves you. By the way, the balloon's still going. Your your sin's far as the east is from the west. And he's given it to you as a gift. That's how God works through Abraham. That's how he works through David. And that blessing's not just for circumcised people. It's for everybody. So God gives his gift to... Take Abraham, for instance. Did he get counted righteous before or after his circumcision? If he gets circumcised and then gets righteous, you say, oh, great. He did something, so God blessed him. But that's not what happens. God blessed him, and then he did something. He got given the righteousness of God through faith and then started acting like it. He didn't start acting like it and then earn the righteousness of God by faith. That's not what happened. And if it didn't happen to him, it's not what happens to you. You get given the righteousness of God when you're a terrible, disastrous sinner, and so do I. Praise God. I ought to know I used to kill Christians for a living. And because I did, I know very well this does not come about because of your efforts. It comes about because God is a gift giver who loves you. So that's what you need to know about the righteousness of God that comes through faith. And that promise actually then got worked out in every area of Abraham's life. Everything Abraham did, he like bore out that image. It's all by faith. He, but he had faith and he was able to conceive a child despite being 90. I don't even want to think about how 90-year-old people have sex and conceive children. But that's what he did. And he somehow miraculously conceived because God gave life where he couldn't have worked for it. That's how Abraham conceived a child. Then later on in his life, God gave life, even he's about to sacrifice Isaac. And he doesn't know how God's going to come through for him, and yet he still does. Because Abraham trusts, not because of what he achieves, it's because of who he believes that God brings life to the dead. And he does that, and the same will be true for all of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was handed over to death for our sin, but was raised to life for our justification. Start of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been declared righteous before God, not on the basis of what we've achieved, but on what we've believed in, or whom we believed, the Lord Jesus, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Can you feel it? The peace with God? You feel that sense of, oh, I'm right before God because I've trusted in Jesus. He's done it all. I don't have to do it. I can't do it. But if I trust in him on my behalf, I've got peace with God. And not only that, I've actually got access by, into this grace in which we now stand by faith. Not only that, actually, but I know that I can rejoice even when things are hard in my life. Because I know that the things that are hard will produce stickability, endurance. And that when, thing, when i got endurance, that builds my character. And when my character gets built, I can hope. And I know that that hope is never going to disappoint me because God's love has been poured into your heart and mine by the Holy Spirit whom he's given. See, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. You might sometimes decide, I'm going to die for a really good person. 
That person's, I love them. I'm, my wife, my son, I, I, I really like them. I'll die for them. But that's not what God does. He comes in Christ to die for people who hate him, who are enemies of God, who are weak and rebellious and angry with him and spitting at him, trying to rip his back to pieces and nail him to a cross. And he dies for them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because he did, I know that if he died for me when I was his enemy, what on earth is he going to do for me now that I'm his friend? You ever thought about that? Jesus died for you when you hated him. How much more will he do for you now that you love him? I just want you to think about that for a moment because that's the reality of the nature of what Jesus Christ has done. And uh, it's vital that we do that so we can rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received peace with God. So death entered the world in one person. Life enters the world in one person. I trust you know this, the one person death comes in is called Adam, the person life comes in is called Jesus Christ. But it sounds very strange, right? Between Adam and Noah, everyone died, even though they hadn't broken any rules. So we know that ultimately people don't die because they've sinned, they die because they're human and they're in Adam. In fact, they don't really die just for what they've done, they die because of who they're in. Let me give you this analogy. Let's say I suddenly have a heart attack and I collapse in a heap and die like this. And oh gosh, oh my heart, my heart, oh no, I'm dead. My big toe right now is dead. Yeah? You come and find me in a couple of hours' time, we won't be able to move. And the big toe might say, that's not fair. No, I didn't have a toe attack. I had a heart attack. Why on earth is my toe suffering the consequences of what the heart did? And you would say, well, toe, I'm afraid, let me be straight with you, you haven't died because of what you did. You've died because of whom you are in. And the person you're in, in this case, Adam, is dead. So, so are you. Tough luck, old chum. But then you imagine that somebody comes along with those electric pads that make you alive again. I know this isn't how it works. Doctors don't email me. But they come along with those electric pads, like this. And it's like, no, no, he's still, he's still going. No, no. And you put it up to 200 and something falulas. I don't know what that is. Okay, 300, 400, and then I come alive again. I'm like, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. I'm alive again. And then the toe is going, wait a second. How did I come back to life again? Nobody put any pads on the toe. Cha-chum, cha-chum. Why is the toe allowed to be alive again? And you say, because, oh toe, you are not alive because of anything you did. You're alive because of who you are in. And because you are in Jesus Christ and he's alive, you're alive too. It's so important you understand this new day, Romans. You don't achieve anything by your own merit. You achieve it because it's given to you by your organic unity with the one who has conquered death. And that's how the process of salvation works. It's called union with Christ. And there are all sorts of differences between the sin of Adam and the life in Christ. And we could talk about those another time. But essentially, one sin leads to everyone getting condemned. And in the same way, one righteous man leads to everyone getting righteous. And so we rejoice and we, that happened so that as sin came in, grace abounded even more. And some of you have sinned a lot, right? And you might, be, you might have sinned as much as me, some of you, maybe, at a push by the age of 18. You go, I've stopped on a lot of sin. Some of them are pretty big, right? And every time I sinned, I was the same. I just found grace went over and above. And then I raised my game and I sinned even more. And then grace went higher. And then I went, sin went higher. And grace went higher. And sin went higher. And it kept going up. It was as if they were, I was trying to gazump God. And I never could. Because every time sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that as death reigned, so also grace and the Lord Jesus Christ might reign in life. Leading to my utter transformation in the sight of God. And causing eternal life in Jesus. So what do you do about it? Because obviously that, some, of, some of you think, oh, that sounds great. We must carry on sinning then. 
then the more I sin, the more of God's grace there is. Yay! Let's sin all the time. No, that's not how it works because you died to sin. Do you remember the analogy of the, the, paddle, the paddles and the toe? You died to sin, so you can't live in it anymore. That's not how these things work. As you died to sin, that's why we bury people. You know, Christians are the only people in the world who say, when you become a Christian, congratulations, we're going to bury you. We call it baptism. And we put them down into a big tank of water. Your church probably does it. Mine does. We put them down into a big tank of water and we bury the old life. And all of the sin. And having buried it, you can't then bring it back to life. You say, actually, you now need to be brought again up into new life. And so we go down into the water and the sin dies. And up into new life and resurrection power. And because you have been buried in baptism, you've now been raised to new life. And you can't go back and live in the old life anymore. Jesus doesn't find death stalking all the time going, hmm, I bet I can catch you out today. Hmm, I wonder if I'll get him this time. He's risen and glorious. And in the same way, you who are in Christ have been buried with him and raised to new life in him. And that means death has no hold on you and neither does sin. So should you sin because you're not under law but under grace? No, because every time you offer yourself to somebody as a slave, you follow that person wherever they make you go. If you decide that you're going to follow sin, sin will take you over here and say, right, here we go. Here's all the death and destruction I can cause to your life. If you offer yourself as a slave to righteousness, it's going to say, okay, here we go. I'm going to take you to the Lord Jesus and you're going to receive eternal life and fruitfulness. You look at your life now. Do you remember when you were enchained, by, voluntarily enchained as a slave to sin? You used to love all this stuff, but what fruit did it produce? Many of you are ashamed of it. That's why what TJ said last night resonated with you. Because you knew there is, a, actually sometimes it's right to be ashamed of some of the things I did until I meet Jesus and find he's washed it away. But actually that behavior, there's things in my life I'm ashamed of too, until the Lord Jesus Christ washed it away. And what I needed was to have my slavery to sin broken so that I instead might belong to somebody else who might lead me in handcuffs, if you like, towards the Lord Jesus Christ and say, in him you will find life and fruitfulness because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't you know, brothers, I know I'm talking mostly to people who know their Bibles. The law is only in charge of you as long as you're alive. But there comes a moment when you die to the law and then you become free from it. It's like as if, let's say a woman's married to an abusive husband and every day she gets up and thinks, maybe today I'll be free, but he's still abusing her. It's not until the husband dies that she's completely free to marry somebody else. But on the day that the husband dies, in a strange way, there's a liberty that comes upon her that enables her to go and marry somebody else, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, in that sense, we are like victims of, a, of a, an abusive husband who might be saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, and you'll never measure up. But by dying to the law, we get to marry somebody new, and his name is Jesus, and he takes us in a totally different direction with our lives and sets us free. Now, it's a little bit like this. I know this is a strange way of thinking about it, but I wouldn't have known what it was to long for something, covet something that isn't mine if the law hadn't told me not to do it. That's what happened. I found I was, I, you know, in some ways, let's say I'm Adam in the garden. I'm just walking around. I'm going, yeah, there's a bit of fruit. A bit. It wasn't until somebody said, don't do that, that I was like, oh, do you know what? I really want to do that. That's how the law works. Some of you, you see signs on this site saying, don't go in here. And you think, I wonder why that sign is there. Let's have a look inside. It's just what happens. Sin works like that. And I, effectively, all of us were like that, the human race. And we found that the law made us want to sin. And in some ways, when you're in that old world, it's like you can't win because I don't even understand my own actions. I kind of want to do this, but it, the thing I want to do is not the thing I actually do. 
And I get to the end of the day, I'm like, oh, no, I didn't live the kind of life I meant today because I, I kind of wanted to do that, but then I did this instead. Why did I do that? Do you ever do that? Do you ever sin and then go, what was that about? I don't even know what my motive was, but it was there anyway. Well, that's not the law's fault. That's actually sin. Hovering in the background going, do it. Wreck your life. Go on, destroy it. I'm sure it'll be fun. You're like, would it really though? But I kind of really want to try it. Oh no, here I am. And in the end, what we do as the human race is say, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Well, the answer is, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord is going to rescue us from this body of death. And therefore, Romans 8 verse 1, if you are in Christ Jesus, God isn't angry with you anymore. If you are in Christ Jesus, God isn't angry with you anymore. Because what God has done by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin is he has condemned in Christ all of the things that you and I and the people to your left and right and in front and behind of you have done in human history that deserve judgment. And God has utterly condemned all of those sins, but he's condemned them all on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by putting him forward as a sin offering, he has released the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God to come into your life and cause you to have your heart so changed that you want to walk in such a way as to keep that law, even though you know that in your flesh you're just a dirty, rotten sinner like everyone else. God has put his spirit into you and it's changed your, transformed your affection. So now you want a different kind of life. And that doesn't mean you live it perfectly, but the Holy Spirit coming and living within you has given you the power to do what the flesh by the, and the law couldn't ever do. He has turned you from a fleshly person into a spiritual person. And that transformation's only been possible because he's condemned sin in the person of the Lord Jesus and given you the Holy Spirit. And you are not now in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. In fact, the Spirit of God doesn't live in you, you can't, you can't even be a Christian. Like The Spirit of God is like what it means to be a Christian. Is you have been made new by God's Spirit and He's living in your heart and transforming your behavior. And when you live by the Spirit but not by the flesh, man, it changes everything. Your goal, righteous behavior, might be the same. But the power has suddenly come to you and you never had the power before. Think of it like this. You ever tried to travel at sea by your own flesh? It's called rowing. Well, can I, by the way, I don't have the arms for this illustration. You're just going to have to work with me. Okay? But, you know, you're pulling like, imagine, I don't know who you'd imagine. You know, rowers in the Olympics or whatever, huge muscular guys. And what you do is you power yourself by your own flesh. You can get somewhere. Not, not that far in the end, but you can get somewhere by flesh alone. It's very, very tiring. But then now imagine that if instead of being powered by the flesh, you get powered by the spirit, what, actually the same word, the wind. Imagine now you said, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to invent, I'm fed up with rowing, I'm going to invent sailing. Imagine the first time that happened and somebody said, sure, this is all very exhausting. I think if we just put up a big piece of cloth, we might be able to harness the power of the wind and we might be able to get to the same place much faster and much less exhaustingly and much less frustrated because the power is coming from someone outside us instead of ourselves. What do you think about that idea? And he's like, yeah, that's, I think that's a good one. Let's try it. Okay, you're not in the flesh anymore. You're now in the spirit. And your responsibility is to put up the sails of your life and catch. Can you feel that breeze now? It's wonderful, praise God. You catch the wind of the spirit and he will take you where he wants to go. You've still got to pay attention to him. 
You don't just sit there falling asleep. You, you go, okay, I want to be attentive to God. What are you doing? I want to learn, my, I want to learn his word. I want to understand his ways. I want to follow him. But ultimately, the power to sail comes from out beyond me, the person of the spirit. It doesn't come from my own muscles. Friends, that is the difference between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And you cannot live life in the flesh and be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a sailor. It's to be a spirit person. And we're going to enjoy that in a few moments' time as we respond. And that's the way that God's intended it to be. So we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live that way, but to the spirit. And what happens is the spirit has come into your heart and he's made you a son and a daughter rather than a slave. See, if you're slave to sin, you're always after doing what it wants, slave to the flesh, slave to the law, he comes and says, no, I don't want you to be a slave. Rowing is something that slaves do. Sons and daughters go sailing. And they, they go sailing knowing that they are children of a father who loves them. And so when the spirit comes into our hearts, he has a cry. Do you know that the spirit just, he cries? As in he exclaims, he celebrates, he explodes with joy. He has a smile bigger than Isabel's when she's singing, right? Comes into your life and says, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit comes into you and makes you know that you're a child of God. And you think, how do I know I'm a Christian? You know, because the Holy Spirit within you is crying out, Abba, Dad, you're mine. I'm yours. May I follow you all my days and enabling you, even when you're suffering, to persevere. Because we know that that proves that we're heirs of God. See, I don't think the sufferings of the present age, nearly there. I don't think the sufferings of the present age are anything compared to the immense glory of what is going to be revealed when the children of God are shown for who they really are. Creation is waiting desperately on tiptoe. These trees, these fields, these birds, that sunset, they're craving on tiptoe saying, do you know, one day all this futility will be gone. All the emptiness, all the death, all the frustration, and we are going to be liberated to be what we and you were originally created to be. To reach forward and say, I'm going to be redeemed one day. I'm going to be set free from the slavery that has come to this earth through the impact of sin and death. And I can't wait for that day. And all of creation is doing that and longing for it. And actually, it's not just creation, but it's you and me ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit in us, longing desperately for it. It's like creation right now is in childbirth. I'm sorry to have to do this. But ever seen someone in labor? So the creation, it's picturing, it's like this. It's like in the living room. It's like, oh, man, this is exhausting. This is, how poor, this is how I picture creation. Creation is straining and saying, I can't wait for this to be over because there's so much pain. And I know it sounds funny because I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm pretending to be pregnant. But for a moment, just think about it. This is what this world is like. This world is saying, good is coming through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory. But for right now, I have to deal with death, cancer, divorce, loneliness, bullying, addiction, all of the problems of this world. I hate it. I hate the world. It's like this. Come on, come on. And it's like creation is turning to the husband they have, human beings, and saying, what did you do to get me into this mess in the first place? And creation is going, come on, come on, come on. And then eventually, it's here. It's here. The new world is here. The life that comes from beyond is here. The new creation is here with no death and no divorce and no loneliness and no sickness and no addiction and no suffering, no tears, none of it. It's here. And you celebrate and you turn to your husband and say, this in somehow is all worth it because God has brought life out of my death and out of my pain and he's conquered everything that's gone wrong. 
And in that delivery suite, as we're longing, the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray, but he does. And so even when we're in the suite going, he's saying, don't worry, hang in there. We're going to make it. Don't worry, hang in there. We're going to make it. Life is coming. And we know that in everything that ever happens, God works for the good of people who love him. You know that? You know why? Because everybody that God knew from before the beginning of time as his own, he gave a destiny to before they'd done anything to achieve it. And every single person that he predestined, he gave this destiny that they were going to be conformed to the image of the likeness of his son. That's your destiny. That's what God wants for your life, to be like Jesus. And every single one of the people that he predestined, he called to himself. Many of them in events just like this. And every single one of the people he called, he declared righteous in Christ. And every single person he declared righteous in Christ, he also glorified and guaranteed eternal fruitfulness and life and blessing. Now, what can you possibly say in response to news like that? If God is on my side, who can be against me and who cares if they are? God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How on earth is God who gave Jesus to us not going to give us all things as well into the bargain? If you ask God to tell him, hey God, which is more precious, Jesus or all things, he'd say Jesus every time and twice on Sundays. And that means if he's given you Jesus, he will give you all things. Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God's the judge. He gets to declare if you're righteous, doesn't matter what anybody else says. And the snake can sidle up to you and say, hey, you're a mess. You're ruined. You're never going to amount to anything. And the judge of the universe has said, justified, glorified. Who cares? Get out of here, Satan. You can leave my quorum by the back entrance. It's in knowing that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Do you know that? Trouble, hardship, nakedness, danger, sword, abuse, addiction, famine, none of it. doesn't really matter. I mean, those things are painful to go through, and I've been through them. In fact, Scripture says we will. It says that every day we're like sheep going to the slaughter. But in all of those things, because of Christ, we have become more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And I'm certain, I am 100% convinced that there is nothing in creation. There's not death or life, the past, your present, your future, angels, demons, nothing in the whole of creation that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord.